Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys, Aitzid Weinstein and Naor Mininger. Hello, Aitzid. Hi, Naor. How are you? I'm great. What is up? Okay, I feel like the world's collapsing around me a little bit, but... Uh, it is. It is. It really is. Yeah, but what can you do? Yeah, so I'm going to try and focus on the episode today. Okay, do that. Forget about the problems. <laughs> okay. So today we're joined by Gilad Sher. Uh, Mr. Sher heads the Center for Applied Negotiations and is a senior research fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. His book, The Israeli-Palestinian Peace Negotiations, 1999 to 2001, Within Reach, was published in Hebrew, English, and Arabic. And he now has a new book titled The Battle for Home, Hakrav al He's an attorney and a senior partner at Gilad Sher, Kadari, and Co. Law Offices. And he also just so happened to be, to serve as the chief of staff and policy coordinator for former Prime Minister Ehud Barak. And now you can finally add to your resume guest on Two Nice Jewish Boys. <laughs> so thank you for joining us. We appoint you pr- president of our foundation. Wow. <laughs> It's an honor. That's challenging. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> thank you, thank you. How You're are welcome. you? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Doing good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So that's quite a quite quite a bit of achieve of achievements there. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Mr. Sher, um, thinking about like reading your book and thinking about your career, I was wondering because you served in Yom Kippur War. Yeah, I did. So I wondered if you can maybe share with us how it was. And, and what I'm wondering is how did that affect the things you ended up doing in your life? Well, I can say in uh, retrospect that, uh, that fighting the uh, 1973 Yom Kippur War was definitely one of my, uh, my most significant uh, experiences in life. And that it kind of shaped the um, uh, my understanding that uh, the Israeli-Arab conflict and the uh, the existence of Israel as a uh, as a national democratic homeland of the Jewish people here in Eretz Israel is not going to be um, it's not going to be easy. Of course, it's not, as we all know. But also that uh, that power per se. Would not be enough in order to um, to allow us to um, to live in peace here, and that basically what um, directed me, if you wish, um, or led me uh, throughout the uh, decades that passed since then. What was your role in the, <clears throat> sorry in the army during that period? I was just a uh, a uh, in the uh, uh, armored course, you know. And wh- uh, where did you serve? Fighting at the Suez Canal and, the, mm-hmm. and later on in uh, in Egypt itself. Um, I was then a uh, on my compulsory service um, duty, and um, so towards the end of my uh, of my second year in the army. Uh, and uh, you know, I was a in in a brigade that that was the uh, on the front line. Um, Confronting the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian army, on uh, on the sixth of October, nineteen seventy-three, and um, you know I lost many friends, I lost uh, many classmates, and by the way, the book is dedicated to three of them uh, that were um, 
literally my classmates at high school, you know. So um a life-changing event. It is. It sure is. Yeah. For every individual, I believe. Yeah. And you say that you understood at that point that power wasn't going to be the the only tool that we could use to 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 attain peace. Sure. But that was that's a shift I'm I'm assuming from the feeling after the six day war was that we can achieve right. anything and right. So that right. was that, that's a um, kind of a um, you grasp the um, um, kind of a perspective that is different as a young man that is different than the um, omnipotent kind mm -hmm. of uh, feeling that you have when you are 19 or 20 year old and um, and I it came later on uh, about three four years later mm -hmm. that I actually sunk into uh, into my uh, my consciousness okay yeah and since then I I do understand that um, that there is a way to uh, uh, provide a future for Israel that would be secure and normal mm -hmm. uh, but this is not just by being the most powerful mm -hmm. actor in the neighborhood. Yeah. So we're going to do a little jump here. Yeah, let's jump one 25 thing, years. Yeah, one thing led to another, and <laughs> you, you served as the uh, uh, peace negotiator or one of the uh, advisors to Ehud Barak in the yeah. Camp uh, David Accords in mm -hmm. 1999 to 2000, yeah. right? Um, so I want, I want to ask you because... I, I mean, from my knowledge, summits like Camp David are kind of a new creature in the 20th century. Um, I mean, this is right at the turn of the century, but they're kind of a new thing, you know, a new a new idea of meeting Concept. between these these two heads of state to kind of, you know, talk stuff out and figure it out. And I wonder if, if before then, during the talks, afterwards, if you think this is a an effective tool. It depends. Uh, it depends on the uh, on the framework. It depends on the uh, on the um, circumstances. It depends on the uh, uh, the situation and the um, the status quo, which is, as we all know, anything but static. Mm -hmm. um, uh, look, summits are kind of a, a tip of an iceberg mm -hmm. because uh, they are based on a very deep thorough, broad uh, infrastructure of, of talks, of understandings, of interim agreements, etc. And, um, and then you try to focus on the issues that, that only during a cracking heads of, of the leaders face-to-face mm -hmm. uh, those issues could and should be resolved. So that's where a summit would be productive. And I believe that Camp David, despite the fact that uh, it did not produce an agreement, as we all know, and that a couple of months later uh, we had the uh, second intifada, the Al-Aqsa intifada that broke out and, and uh, continued for about four years. Um, nevertheless, whatever we achieved in Camp David 
would serve as the basis for any future negotiations, agreement, etc. So it is important in the historiography of, of peace negotiations. It is important to it is important to uh, to put um, the um, respective leadership in uh, in one room and let them, you know, try to uh, encompass a mutual vision of the future and carve out um, the parameters for such a future. So if you, w if you wish, you know, uh, three, four months after Camp David uh, collapsed, Camp David ended uh, at the end of July 2000. But in December 2000, on the 23rd of December, actually 16 years uh, by the day yeah. this yeah. week, yes. right? yeah, yeah. the day after tomorrow, um, we we um, uh, we had the Clinton parameters, which were um, uh, read out loud by uh, by the um, president to us, the two delegations, uh, very small delegations, Israeli one and a Palestinian one, um, and they basically uh, led the way to a best judgment of an American president who was so compassionately and intimately and extensively involved in the uh, peace process throughout the eight years tenure uh, at the White House. Um, and they will, he said, they will go off the table once I'm out of the White House in less than one month. However, speaking about the, the Clinton parameters, 16 years Mm -hmm. Later, they are still very valid and very viable for paving the way towards a possible agreement between Israelis and Palestinians on permanent status. So you were there in the room yeah. with Barack and Arafat and, and during them talking. Mm -hmm. um, so how close really were we then? We were... You know the first name, uh, the first title of my my book that you mentioned uh, in the introduction was "Just Beyond Reach," and at the very last minute, I changed it to "Within Reach." Uh huh. Okay. Much so, more hopeful title. Yes, but but it reflects the two um, the two um, sides of my my answers to you on this question, which is it was beyond reach because we did not have a realistic, pragmatic, and courageous leader uh, on the other side of the of the table, Arafat. On the other side, on not, the a, other not side, on our side. On the other side of the table that was ready uh, to make this very small step and shake our hand in order to continue building a peace environment. Um, so this, this, this part was beyond reach because of the character of Arafat, because of his reluctance to, um, um, to um, cross the threshold of statementship. The leap of faith. Yeah, exactly. So and, but, but, but he was within reach because the parameters were very close. Mm -hmm. in, most of the, in most of the issues, territory, security, even refugees, uh, not on Jerusalem. On Jerusalem, this was a big, big sticking point. Not Jerusalem 
per se, but mm -hmm. the old city and the uh, Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, etc. Mm -hmm. This was and still is a sticking point. And by the way, uh, throughout the years that passed since then, uh, I believe that uh, things are not working in anyone's favor in terms of, of um, narrowing the gaps, rather the contrary. Right. So uh, I have to ask, because you say um, you brought up uh, Arafat's character, but you also talked about the fact that we bring these these people into one room to, yeah. to, to um, and mediate, you know, some kind of negotiation, some kind of talks. I, I wonder how much... Uh, how much comes into play the the interpersonal relationships, the characters of the people, mm -hmm. like you said, and the and the chemistry? Well, I, I've been asked this question many times before, as you as you may imagine. But and my answer is, um, it matters, mm -hmm. but it's not the um, most important topic or yeah. ingredient in negotiations. Negotiations are based on interests. You look for the common ground, for the common interest, a zone of possible agreement that would um, that would be good enough and not too bad for the respective parties. And when you look for that, um, you are discussing interests and not positions. You are discussing uh, interests and not personal aspirations or personal um, interactions is it not difficult so, for the for the sometimes do, do you not reach points where it's difficult to put these the, the sure. are conflicting you know personalities aside and discuss the ideas sure but uh, you know one thing that a uh, good negotiator has to uh, has to learn throughout time is to uh, is to zoom out from uh, from the negotiation room and from the negotiation table uh, zoom out and take a uh, a much broader view, a balcony view of uh, of the floor uh, where negotiations reassess. are. Reassess exactly, and then zoom in again uh, to the person that sits across the table and find the way to um, um, to proceed while uh, walking part of the way together. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, Mr. Cher, I mean, the two-stage solution that you're, you're a big advocate of. I am. I'm wondering because the thing with the two-stage solution is the sense that it suggests that Jews and Arabs can never coexist. So isn't one-stage solution... That's not, that, well, I'll, I'll answer that, but it's not true. That's not the, uh, the assumption. Arabs and Jews could live together and can so live together and can. do live together. So if they can live together, so why not one state for two people? Isn't it a more pluralistic, more humane approach for our situation? Look, um, to me, the Zionist aspiration has always been, since the inception of Zionism about 120 years ago, to have in Eretz Israel the, um, a national homeland that would be democratic, that would be based on on universal values, um, but that would would be the uh, um, exclusive state of the Jewish people. So, to me, a Jewish democratic Israel 
doesn't mean that it rules out um, any non-Jews or that it excludes any non-Jews from, um, from within the borders of Israel. It means that Israel maintains secure boundaries, recognized boundaries, and within those boundaries, there is a Jewish majority and a democracy. Mm-hmm. Which means that, you know, you respect the minorities, they have equal rights, but you still maintain a Jewish majority because that's the only state in the world for the 13, 14 million Jews scattered um, around the world. But okay. if we give citizenship to the territories, that the residents of the territories, wouldn't we still be the majority? Like, no. wouldn't it be like no, 60%, 70% Jews and 30%, no, 40% we Arabs? No, we won't, because there are currently 1.8 million Palestinians, 1.9 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. There are about 2.5 million Arabs in the West Bank, Palestinians, and there are... Um, a million or so. A million and a half, a million and point six. Here. Um, million Arabs, Israeli Arabs. Okay, so altogether, you know, I'm not concerned with being 51% or 49% or something like that. But a significant majority of Jews within the boundaries of the state of Israel, that's my home. And... and if you look at the uh, Declaration of Independence, the 1948 Declaration of Independence, that sets the uh, the pillars of uh, of the state to be the nation state, mm-hmm. um, you find all this in it. Mm-hmm. You find the Jewish part. You find the biblical um, attachment. You find the uh, um, the universal values, human rights, democracy, liberalism. Pluralism. So uh, I, I want to know because w- th- it, that that has an there's an issue reconciling that with like the modern conception of a democratic state because in in in, a, in the current conception of a, of a democratic state it seems to me that to limit anybody entrance because of their denomination or their race or their gender. And this is maybe, maybe it's overly pluralistic, but, but the idea of saying we want a state with a Jewish character and, and I'm not necessarily saying, uh, leaning to one side or the other, but I'm, I'm wondering if there is, if there's a problem reconciling that with the modern conception of, of democracy saying we want a state that is demographically Jewish. I'm not. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having a nation state for the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Jewish people is zero point zero zero two percent of the world's population. It was once more, but yeah. yeah. And it and it and it actually requires uh, a self determination in Eretz Israel. Okay. Yeah. So. I'm not I'm not talking about anything that is even has even the the scent of 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 racism or or whatever yeah. discrimination on 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 a uh, demographic kind of or ethno yeah. uh, uh ethnicity ethnicity or whatever. I believe that I believe that uh uh we can live very happily with many non-Jews 
within our boundaries, but we have to know where our boundaries are. Mm-hmm. And that if we lose the, um, um, the expression of Jewish and democratic state, if we lose one part of this equation, then we lose our identity and we, and we actually bury Zionism altogether. And this is the, this is the reason that I wrote this book. Yeah. A battle for home is a battle for my home which I consider being Jewish and democratic one. The reason I'm, I'm so persistent about this point is be, because I think the most, one of the most interesting and thought-provoking approaches that we hear uh, in recent years from people like Professor Moshe, Moshe Ahrens, who was the, the defense minister, and many people from the deep right, they, they are Zionists, uh, according to themselves, and they say, we can manage... Uh, have one state. So, so can what? Can we? I mean, I'm asking them. Can we? It's not really. How, so, how do you explain su- such intelligent? What, are you. they so blind? No, they are not blind, but they are providing a kind of an illusion that it's possible to have um, two big parts of the population, two big sectors of the population, with one having uh, entirely full rights and mm-hmm. the other having almost entirely full rights voting not for the sovereign organs in the um, in, in the territory but for someone else in Jordan in Palestine in wherever okay right so that's not the, the kind of a they're foregoing fantastic them. autonomy is not is co- completely contradictory to what yeah. you just um, um, They're for going asked the me about. Exactly. It's yeah. not real democracy. This okay. is almost like, you know, yeah, they are equal citizens, but with a kind of a minus with a, with sign. A, yeah, you know. with a... With an asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. Um, what I, I, I actually want to take a step back. Back, back to, to the, basics. Back to the negotiations, because sure, there's something that interests me. Um I, I mean, obviously, the politics of it interests me very much, but sometimes the more personal aspect uh, is more uh, alluring to me. And I, I wonder if being in that place in Camp David, um, where you know uh, there was such a historic precedent for for peace negotiations, if there was any kind of uh, pressure, motivation, if there was any anything that, if it influenced in any way. Sure, I mean. You know that you are at a uh, at a very meaningful and probably uh, a very decisive kind of uh, of juncture in mm-hmm. the history of your country, and that you bear a responsibility that cannot cannot be uh, imagined in terms of um, of measurement of of the. Uh, uh, magnitude of this responsibility, because every word you say, every paper you prepare, every uh, interaction with the other parties, and even with your own colleagues, is uh, has a significance, and that you might be either walking towards a better environment, a better reality, uh, in the direction that you are aspiring to get to. And you might create something that uh, would be a uh, 
either a failure or or a non-achievement or something like that. So you do your best. Mm-hmm. And I personally am, uh, that's my motto, you know, do your best, do the best you can. Mm-hmm. It might not be sufficient, but at least you know that you've gave, you've given everything your your best effort. And you feel that you did that there? I think so. I think so. I believe, yes. You know, uh, we we made a lot of mistakes, of course. I made a lot of mistakes. What's your personally. biggest mistake? Um, you know, uh, I think that um, in terms of uh, preparing the summit, we were fine. I mean, we did a very thorough preparation in uh, in the back channel of Sweden that that, that preceded uh, Kim David where Shlomo Benami and myself uh, represented Israel and Abu Alai and Hassan Asfour represented uh, the Palestinians. Um, and we actually did um, narrow down the uh, topics that the, the leaders um, were supposedly going to tackle during the summit. Um, I think that um, this was good. But... A, we did not provide Arafat with enough um, support from Cushions. Arab states, okay. from Arab states, you know, the moderate ones, the uh, the leading ones, Egypt, Jordan, etc., uh, to um, to take those decisions and to uh, to make the compromises that were to not uh, feel essential. isolated. Exactly, yeah. that's number one. Number two, we were. We we were aware during the summit of the incompetence of the uh, American team in managing the uh, in managing the process of negotiations within the summit, in the fact that uh, President Clinton was so deeply involved in the details, rather than look up and see that the two leaders are not talking to one another uh-huh. during the summit. Okay. Uh, he was too much involved with us, negotiators, rather than with the leaders together. Okay, much unlike President Carter in 1978, uh, the first Camp David mm-hmm. between Anwar Sadat and, and Menachem Begin, which produced produced the uh, agreement Egyptian. between Israel, yeah. Israel and Egypt. So uh, these two uh, points were not. I think we're not um, well enough tackled mm-hmm. during uh, during the summit, and I was not insistent enough in terms of um, of uh, putting them on the table and 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 solving the uh, the uh, those those uh, problems. So, and but I but I think you know after all and taking everything into account, the American deficiencies in the uh, in the managing of the summit uh, the lack of the um, arab coalition uh, sometimes not a concrete enough proposal from our side to the palestinians uh, but altogether we did well okay but putting these on on a scale and weighing that vis-a-vis the one decision that Arafat has taken, which is not to go ahead towards an agreement, not to go ahead and tell his people, we're going to get our 
independence, we're going to get our sovereignty. It will be on 22% of mandatory Palestine, British mandatory Palestine, but we will have our state and our self-determination. We will have to give up some of our aspirations. We can continue to dream, but we will not return to the state of Israel proper. Okay, he did not do that. So this, vis-a-vis -vis all the mistakes of Israelis, of Americans, of other Arabs, whatever... Doesn't compare. You, you can't compare that. It's... And, and then resorting to terrorism yeah. in order to get more than what you would have gotten. That's tragic. Around the negotiation table. It, it's tragic. It's tragic. For it them. Is. For, for, all, them. for all of us. For all of us. But for them for especially, because, you know, we're... we're, we're We'll okay. be fine. We'll be fine, I think. I know you, you're a bit less optimistic, but, but... No, I am optimistic, but I am optimistic uh, on condition that, yes. you know, that the right things will be done. But I'm saying to them, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I, I, I actually wonder if... Because I know that during the negotiations, I recently read um, that... That when Arafat at the at the conclusion of the negotiations, when Arafat returned, that his rating, his approval rating, actually rose. So what? Whereas, whereas, so what? No. So I'm wondering if if there is actually if I wonder if he. What I'm saying is, I wonder if he knew that that would happen. I wonder if he. I if there is a certain value to obstinance. And I believe he did. Okay. I believe he did, and I think that this this adds to the tragedy. Yeah, because so many people lost their lives or their health, um, and the bloodshed was terrible for all parties concerned. And the illusion that you know the um, the time works on on this or that party uh, favor is is really ridiculous, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact of the matter is that a year and a half afterwards, very, very deep into the bloodshed of the Intifada, during, um, um, I believe it was during uh, one of the operations that Israel uh, um, underwent through uh, in the West Bank, he said, okay, I'm ready to accept the Camp David parameters as they are. Good morning. Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Nobody believed in the partner anymore. Yes. The, the peace camp in Israel was dead. You know, goes to show how important timing is. Timing and um, giving the right message to both your constituency and the opposite party's constituency. Now we'll get we'll get to the book, your new book, very soon. But before we get to that, I, if we can again touch the basics, maybe some people don't realize and don't. I'm not sure everyone really get what are. What is the occupation? What what does he mean de facto? The occupation and, and on what the is ground. It, what, is it, what are the facts on the ground? Yeah, what is... Facts on the ground is that um, Israel was, in 1967, was uh, attacked simultaneously by five um, Arab armies. Namely, uh, the leading ones were, uh, were of course, Syria and, and Egypt. And that uh, and Jordan uh, joined a bit later, and that Israel conquered uh, during this war the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt and the Gaza Strip, as well as uh, the West Bank from Jordan. The West Bank is six thousand square kilometers, 
and the uh, Gaza Strip is 360 square kilometers. So small. Uh, yeah, it's very small. It's the most densely populated area in the world, yeah. Gaza Strip. And uh, so the victory in terms of military uh, dimensions was, was fantastic. You know, in six days, you know, to conquer all this against all odds, uh, this was fantastic. But but then uh, throughout uh, those almost 50 years now, I believe that the uh, the asset is uh, has become a burden, and that um, and so in 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 the early 70s, a um, a movement uh, called Gush Emunim started to um, to settle in the territories uh, with a kind of a turning a, a blind eye to it by, by all governments, all consecutive governments. Yes, but the first to give it a blind eye were Rabin, the Rabin sure. administration. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 not, um, I'm not excluding any of the governments since, uh, since 1967. I, I just read Paris's biography yeah. and it clearly states how he chose to let it happen exactly. and that's a very historic turning point. I, I cover this, yes, I, I cover this in my book if you, uh, yes, if you, you recall. Yeah, so yeah. Um, all the, the story of the settlement, um, the settlement movement, etc. And by now we have, we have I'm, I'm, I'm excluding Jerusalem. In Jerusalem we have, we have 12 new neighborhoods that were built throughout the, uh, the years all around Jerusalem. You know, they are part and parcel of Jerusalem and this, this of course is, is even accepted by, uh, by uh, the Palestinians and the Arab world altogether. This will be part and parcel of Yerushalayim in any agreement, in any arrangement that, uh, that is a long-term one. So this, this is not the question. But within, in the territories we have close to 400,000 people like 390,000 in, um, in Jew Jewish settlers Settler. Jewish settlers yeah. uh, in in settlements that are uh, considered uh, by them as being the pioneering you know set uh, settlement of um, of you know, on Jewish land on biblical land etc uh, this is the uh, fulfillment of the vision the biblical um vision of the prophets, etc., etc. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we, um, during the Oslo um, process, we've, uh, we've recognized the, um, the self-determination right of the Palestinians. We recognized the PLO as the uh, sole representative of the Palestinians, the Palestinian people. They recognized Israel. And um, uh, so it was a mutual recognition in 1993. But... Um, we continued our settlement activities so that um, in the West Bank, where we have 2.5 million Palestinians, we have by now close to 400,000 uh, Israelis, Jewish Israelis. However, most of them, about 86% of those 400,000 people, reside in the areas that are in the vicinity of the Green Line of 1967, the, the uh, armistice lines that were mm -hmm. uh, pre-1967. So if you, if you um, add the blocks of settlement, the main blocks of settlements to, uh, to Israel, and by that I mean like 6, 7, 8%, one digit of uh, the area of the West Bank, you include already about 86% Mm -hmm. of the settlers within 
the boundaries of Israel. And then you compensate by land swap or whatever from Israel proper. Um, but who, who that, rules the territories? Like, uh, uh, so territory is, according to the uh, interim agreement that was signed in September 1995, just a month and a half before um, Prime Minister Rabin was uh, assassinated by an Israeli Jew, um, the territory is divided into three uh, categories of areas. Area A, where the vast majority of Palestinians reside, are the seven cities. You know, Jenin, Tulkarim, Nablus, Kalkilia, Ramallah, Bethlehem, mm-hmm. Jericho, and Hebron. Okay. Um, so that's area A. That's about 20% of the territory. They have full responsibility, both civil responsibility and, and security responsibility. Then you have the rural areas, about 20% as well of the territory. Uh, rural areas are called Area B. And in Area B, we, they have a um, civil responsibility, public order, and um, uh, and safety, etc. But an overriding Israeli security responsibility. So the military is present there. Yeah. Not too much, but it is. And then you have Area C, which is the uh, largest portion of the West Bank, 60% of the West Bank. Area C is totally Israeli. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you have all the settlements there, all the strategic areas, all the um, military installations, etc. Uh, and that covers the, uh, the, the largest part of the West Bank. But the law in Area A, for example... Is the law of the military or the law no, of the Palestinian autonomy? Law. Yeah. Palestinian law. Yeah, but sure. the army can operate there like... And it does. If, and if it, it does. has to counter, you know, terrorism, etc. It does. So that's the... Ocu- There's so intrusions, etc. To understand the occupation, for example, for Area A, this is Let me, the meaning. Yeah. The meaning is that the army can go yeah. there and... It can go. It, do- it doesn't go very often there, but it does when, when, whenever needed. When there's a threat. Exactly. So... But let, let me give you an example of what occupation is. Um, and I put this in, you know, the term occupation, which I, I do not accept in, um, in for instance, um, in relation to Gaza. I mean, since uh, 2005, August 2005, there's neither a single Israeli military or an Israeli civilian present in the Gaza Strip. Not a single one, right? Which is a mistake according no, to what you write in the book, okay, maybe. Just, no, no, I'm not saying that it is a mistake. It's a mistake um, the way that this strategic, the, the correct strategic decision has been taken to leave Gaza, mm-hmm. but it was conducted lousily mm-hmm. in terms of addressing the uh, security needs and the civilian needs and the uh, social needs, etc., etc., was not well planned, was no um, internal discourse between w- within the Israeli constituency and the Israeli society. But altogether, um, you look at Gaza, so Gaza, there's no Israeli presence, right? Yes. However, Gaza, by most uh, international experts and, and, and the vast majority of the international decisions and resolutions taken, consider Gaza occupied by Israel. I, by the way, do not accept that. And I've written a lot about why Gaza is not occupied by Israel. 
because we don't have you know uh, boots on the ground however we in the perimeter of gaza we are present mm-hmm. air sea and ground, ground now and underground ground. maybe also exactly. <laughs> so, so so uh, the definition is not is not that important. Um, the the situation is a situation where you hold uh, for many good reasons, but you hold a large number of individuals and communities um, with restricted um, movement, restricted um, possibility of employment restricted um, human rights, etc. And that's what makes the uh, the situation, you know, th- let me end by saying that I do not believe that neither Judaism nor um, Zionism has ever aspired uh, to exist and to uh, um, and to keep on going while governing another people. But okay. uh, if I may, Tan, uh, if we if we dive now into the book, apropos what you just s- said, because uh, okay, so the book uh, uh, will it be out in English, by the way. Will it be published I hope in so. English. If okay. you find a uh, a good publisher in uh, in the United States or wherever, because yes, I think it, it should. Um, so uh, the first about half of the book is a very profound and and enlightening uh, historical um, coverage. Of, of the history of the 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 conflicts that were within the Jewish people and it gives a, a very interesting perspective over our nowadays uh, situation but then towards the end um, towards the end you see uh, when you touch what like you said the most imp- maybe the most important aspect of the future uh, resolution which which is if we uh, go out, from and 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 disengage. remove this disengage with the settlements there is still the security issue you're right and what you write in the book you write that that um worst case scenario the army will still be present and to me it's the realistic i i don't know if i can imagine us giving it to i don't know the un so i think it's a very realistic uh option and mm-hmm. i'm and now what i'm ended up thinking is that so okay so in, in the end according to the worst case scenario in which we don't have a partner and, and we disengage and we and the military is still present so what did we do here we are still occupiers right as long as the army sure. is there we're still occupiers so you know what i'm saying so i, sure, I, I, I understand I your question because, because there's, there's a uh, confusion here between uh, between the end state or between the permanent status, the long-term comprehensive agreement, in which, of course, every um, every state or every entity, every um, the political entity, will have its own uh, uh, its own sovereignty and and its own um, you know will be sovereign on its own ground. Um, and what what you just uh, depicted is the um, is actually the um, interim transitional phase in which. Um, because I am so concerned uh, to preserving Israel's identity as the Jewish democratic state um, within recognized and secured boundaries, this is why I want the two-state solution. This is not because I want 
I mean, I'm very good. I'm I'm happy to have uh, the Palestinians live much better and be a viable, you know, um, viable state, uh, robust economically and socially, etc. Um, and with good governance, etc. This is of course good, but it's not my concern. My concern is to have Israel as a country with boundaries that encompass the values that you and Eitan and myself are believing in and that are the, the founders of the state and our kids and our grandchildren um, believe in those, uh, in the, in those uh, human values of democracy and Judaism. So this is why I want this separation between the disengagement between Israelis and Palestinians. And because I don't believe that, um, that a permanent status agreement that resolves all the core issues simultaneously, you know, Jerusalem, the refugees and the territories, settlements, boundaries, um, security, etc. I don't think that, that there's very good chances for that to happen in the foreseeable future. So I'm, but we are still as long as babies around. Not not only, but, but you know the the trends are both within the Israeli society, uh, within the Palestinian society, around us in the Middle East, etc. The trends are not in favor of what I'm saying, but this is because people are not aware of the danger of losing all this because you do nothing, because you just sit and do nothing. And what I believe is uh, the right thing to be doing is for Israel to hold the reins once again, to initiate um, both a negotiation process, a bilateral negotiation process with no preconditions, a multilateral negotiations process, or at least a dialogue with the uh, moderate, relatively moderate Sunni states around us, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Gulf states, etc. And at the same time, prepare, if worse come to worst, to disengage independently, according to its own terms, until negotiations open again or uh, become fruitful so if we if we do disengage i mean if we do ultimately pull out of the west bank and we've of, seen what of not all of the west bank no, except for the exactly. settlement block the large settlement blocks. but there's a resulting yeah. palestinian eventually hopefully autonomous yeah. autonomous uh, nation um what what responsibility do we have for the nation that arises in those borders? Well, it depends. It depends on the understandings and the... Um, because we we've have. seen what I'm trying to say right. is what we've seen Iraq. what happens in, in, in Gaza and in Iraq and, and So if places. there's a dictatorship, all of a sudden do we go in and, 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 and save them? It's, it's... It depends. It depends on the uh, character of uh, the agreements, of the transitional agreements of uh, the understandings, even, you know, tacit understandings, not, not necessarily, you know, uh, kind of um, photo ops, etc., and, and big mm -hmm. uh, fanfare. I'm talking about doing the right thing for, uh, for, for us first, what's for the benefit of Israel, and then looking how to do that with the uh, minimal collateral damage 
to uh, to the counterparts that we have, and building, continue building the the, the statehood or uh, the um, governance of the Palestinians, their economy, etc. Help them, you know, help them. This is why what I'm saying about uh, leaving the IDF on the ground with a different footprint, of course, but even if you withdraw uh, some of the civilians, the Israeli Jewish civilians, uh, from the territories and and relocate them into Israel proper, um, you need to do it in, in a way that would not um, further sectorialize, further tribalize, further... Um, um, uh, aggravate the animosity between the, 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 the sectors in Israel. Shake our quote. Hmm? Yeah. Do it smarter yeah. than, than we did. Smarter. You know, subside as much as you can the trauma because there is a trauma here. Mm-hmm. So we will, I mean, we're nearing the end, so we'll take a, a step back. And uh, you've just uh, returned from uh, Harvard Law School. That's right. Yeah. As we understand. And you were teaching there a course on uh, a seminar on uh, Jewish identity in contemporary America. Yeah, basically uh, I was co-teaching with, uh, with a very, very dear friend and a brilliant law professor uh, and a guru of negotiations and conflict resolution uh, Robert Minukin, Professor Robert Minukin from Harvard Law School and the head of uh, of Harvard's uh, program on negotiations for the last um, 20, 20 some years, 25 years. In Harvard. So, at Harvard. Not related to Steve Minuchin. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Nominated by it, no? Uh, not, not that I know. <laughs> okay. Um, and um, uh, he invited me to, uh, to co teach with him this seminar. We had about 19 students, uh, law students, and uh, and two um, PhD candidates from Harvard uh, Education School, and and we went through the um, uh, negotiating Jewish identity in contemporary America. Uh, how does that um, affect the Israeli-American relationship? How does that affect uh, the, the Jewish identity in America of this generation and the um, and the uh, younger generation even right now, with questions of conversion, of uh, intermarriage, of um, of course um, political questions like the BDS and uh, and other religiosity, religiosity, etc. What does it mean to be a Jew? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the beginning of the 21st century in America, um, and how much Israel is present or non-present in the in in the equation of being a Jew? Uh, can you, for instance, be um, um, critical of Israel's policies and at the same time remain a a, a very um, a pure Zionist and uh, and and Jew? Mm-hmm. Um, so all this, you know, it was it was very interesting for me. It was uh, it was very challenging, and we had brilliant students. Uh, you met the future generation of the leadership and and future negotiators of the states. Some of them, of course, might uh, might find themselves uh, serving, you know, 
America in in future negotiations, of course. Right. I mean, yeah. And, and the the um, the general identity in this course, I mean, I'm assuming they were mostly uh, Jewish. Not only. Not only. Not only. But but mostly. And there was a very very long waiting line. Oh really? Oh yes. So, but they they uh, the of the Jews. Yeah. Actually, it interests me. What other than I mean, there were there were just Americans of all yeah. Iranians size and shape no. <laughs> <laughs> and color. It was a um, small seminar. Right. It was not a big one. But of the was it, was it mostly Jewish? Yeah. Uh, and of the Jews, were they were they mostly secular? Were they mostly religious? I mean, what was the identity of these people who were? It was very you know? very um, diversified. It was oh. uh, was not monolithic, and um, yeah. and each one, you know. The reason that we had such a long waiting list was that uh, uh, it attracted many, many uh, young students mm -hmm. from law school and elsewhere in, at Harvard. Um, but uh, Professor Manukin thought that you know this intimate um, environment where you can open up mm -hmm. and tell your own story. And then zoom out to the uh, uh, to, to the topics in question, and then zoom in again to your own life experience, yeah. your family, your community, uh, your student body, etc. Uh, this has had to be kept between between us within mm -hmm. this group, and I, you know, in retrospect, I believe that uh, that he was perfectly right. Um, last question, if I may, Gilad. Um, because in your book, uh, you 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 re give really de detailed tools on on how to to do the acts of of future piece of future process. And one of the most interesting things is when you write about the settlers and how you you relate to them, how you see them uh, more more more. You see them better than the stereotype and one of the things that moved me is the how do you call yourselves in english the flag the the, the blue and white future future blue white future. blue white yes. future and if you can tell a bit about that that organization and and what you found out with with your meetings and blue white future is a um is an ngo that uh, we founded uh oni petrushka Ami Ayalon, and myself in 2009 um in order to provide a toolbox for the two-state solution, not just talk about it, but but really provide the ground and the infrastructure for uh, paving the way towards that, with or without an agreement. And from the very first moment, we uh, considered the settlers not as our enemies or as someone that you should hate or whatever, I don't know. On the contrary. They were pioneers. They were, some of them achieved um, a beautiful border, future border for Israel, uh, you know, um, around the blocks of settlements, for instance, which broadens up the, uh, um, you know, the waistline of, of Israel, the 1967 waistline of Israel. But the others have to return. And they have to return empathically. They have to return within a an internal discourse of um, of of a common denominator that would be possible for us to find 
So we are looking for this common denominator. And what we did is first we uh, we provided a blueprint for uh, uh, voluntary evacuation, uh, compensation, relocation, absorption of settlers who wish to uh, to leave now. There's about 30,000 settlers that are ready to go now without any agreement, without any decision, without any uh, resolution within, in government, etc. Let them do it. And, uh, and the second thing that we did is... Um, is a very very thorough survey on um, opportunities for housing from Haifa to uh, Beersheba excluding Tel Aviv it's too expensive and we found that there are enough housing opportunities for that and the uh, third thing that we we continue doing is to have a dialogue with them in in groups that are moderated uh, professionally with the most extreme rabbis and with young people of in their late 20s, early 30s, we are already, we have about 120 veterans of, of, of this project that is ongoing. Um, every six months a new group comes mm -hmm. in. They meet once on that side of the border and, and then at the other side of the border. I think that, that you know, not... None of us is very um, knowledgeable about the other party. And, and by that, by meeting, by talking, but by um, sharing the concerns um, and the aspirations and the interests, uh, we, we learn how to, uh, how to speak to one another. And that's very important to me. To me, uh, you know, I have, I have very good friends amongst the settlers. Uh, despite the fact that there is a, a huge gap politically between us. And I think that this is the right way to approach the future of the state of Israel. Eitan? No, that was, that was great. I think, I think that's, that's something invaluable because to, to, it's really a grassroots approach to kind of prepare the, the foundations mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, leave it up to the people at the top and kind of... Uh, Bottom oh. up. Bottoms up. Bottoms up. Yeah. Mr. Sher, thank you so much for coming. It was a real pleasure. And uh, I just hope that what you write in the book will come true. And if you guys read Hebrew, uh, you're invited to, to purchase it. And hopefully soon it will be available in English. Um, Eitan, see you next thank week. Thank you so much for joining us. See you now. It was, it was beautiful. Thank you. Bye.